Thank you, Reverend Okamoto. You all have um, Dr. Summer Brown's description. Uh, it's just before tab one in your book. Um, she is a senior Dharma teacher in the lineage of Chokyak Rinpoche. And many of you know her as a professor at Naropa University, partly because of um, her amazing book, Bikini's Warm Breath, and I encourage you, if you have not read it, to read it. I'll let you read what's in the program. Instead, what I would like you to allow me to do is to add a few comments. Because she's an amazing teacher. Along with being a leader in her tradition, her interest in socially engaged Buddhism has taken her, and for us, Buddhism into many realms as a representative of Buddhism in interfaith dialogues and communities. She is very active in the um, American Academy of Religion and many more. So I could go on and on about her credentials. Instead, what I'd like to share is how I know her. She was my teacher uh, on the academic side, uh, but also an inspiration to me on my journey, both in getting a Master's of Divinity at Naropa University, but also traveling on in my journey, which is called Tokodo and now Kyoshi. And so I wish to publicly thank her for her guidance, but most of all for being an inspiration. Um, she is uh, inspiring in the classroom and mostly because of her amazing ability to share Buddhism, not just intellectually, but from the heart. So she is able to share and encourage us to listen with heart-mind. She is a model of practicing heart-mind. So it is with fondness and deep respect I invite you to join me in welcoming Dr. Judith Zimmerman. Thank you so much, Carol. And um, we can't say enough about Carol and the way that she is socially engaged. And mover and shaker, if you don't know her now, by the end of this program, you will definitely know her, the mover and shaker. Um, when I first came to Naropa in 1978, one of the first conferences that I put on was the first Women in Buddhism conference that happened in North America. It happened at Naropa in 1980, and then there was another one the following year in 1981. In fact, Tree Light Green, where are you, Tree Light? Yes, I met Treelight at those conferences, and we haven't seen each other since Sri Lanka in 1985, so... And she's in Colorado Springs, it just shows we don't get out much. <laughs> but uh, having put together that first Women in Buddhism conference and doing it basically single-handedly, I have a taste of how much work it is. And uh, what a labor of love it has been. And I think we should all take a moment to thank you. So I'm delighted to be here to give the keynote address for this wonderful I hope the microphone is, I've been told if I keep talking, it will keep working. <laughs> but um, that doesn't allow 
short breaths. We are brought here tonight because of our inspiration that comes from practicing the Dharma, the liberating path to awakening. We are also brought here today because of the real world considerations we have as women and men dealing with the generals we encounter in our daily lives and their pull on us and their manifestation as pain of many women and men in the world. How can we bring those gender issues to our paths as Dharma practitioners? The ancient tradition of Buddhism has brought to this country the innovative inner technologies that have meant so much to us. Meditation practice has brought us to our real home, the present moment. From that place, we've been able to ride the wild horse of our turbulent emotions. We've been able to see through the, the self-cherishing and to discover that we are not the only suffering beings in the universe. We have been able to notice the suffering that has overtaken our world and to aspire to relieve and remove that suffering. And we have developed tender hearts and actual abilities sometimes to begin to help others. For this, we are deeply indebted to our teachers, their teachings, to our communities, and to the practices that have been such a help. So often we have come this far by ignoring or bypassing our gender. Our teachers have been mostly male, at least in most of the American Buddhist lineages. The great masters of the tradition we read about and whose pictures we have placed on our shrines are almost exclusively male. The Buddha himself was male. We feel genuine appreciation and devotion to them, but what about our female bodies? Where does gender come in? For myself, I came to Buddhism 35 years ago from in the 70s, I guess it's more than 35 years ago, 37, 38 years ago, from feminist activism, and I was battle-weary. I had been directing a rape crisis center and leading a regional initiative to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. I had been participating in confrontation therapy with convicted rapists in prison. I was exhausted. As I threw myself into the Dharma, I had entered an emergency room, and the triage of intensive practice saved my life. It was not until years later, sitting in yet another solitary retreat, that I gazed at the scroll painting of the lineage tree above my shrine, and I felt terribly alone. Where were my sisters, mothers, aunts, and grandmothers in the Dharma? I could not deny the power of what I had learned in practice, but I needed to fill out my family to find the foremothers of our traditions and to hear their voices about how to be female and to be the Dharma. I needed their guidance in how to dharmically be a mother, 
daughter, and wife, how to be a Dharmic woman. I needed to embrace embodiment, emotions, nurture, and my own experience as a woman. When we look for our foremothers, they are there, but it is difficult to find out much about them, and even more difficult to discover their voices and teachings. They are there, strong yoginis, both monastic or clergy and laywomen, with teachings and students. But the habit of patriarchy, so deep and pervasive in Asia and everywhere, has kept them hidden, allowing them few students and little visibility. When they surface, we find profound teachings on relating to the challenges of our female lives that span centuries, geography, culture, and modernization. We also find that their perspectives are not only female, but human, with wisdom about how to work with obstacles in our lives, whether we are male or female. What those teachings reveal is that it was and is sometimes difficult in a traditional society to practice the Dharma intensively as a woman. With responsibilities of home, family, and extended family, chores, and child rearing, it is difficult to practice meditation and retreat, and it is difficult to study, sometimes impossible to study. In many societies, traditional roles allow little freedom for women. Deprived of education or even an opportunity for education, deprived of support, deprived of respect, even nuns have had to struggle to practice. Certainly, there are obstacles for Western women as well, but we more often have access to education. We have greater control over money and over power in our daily lives. We are people of privilege in the world because of our abilities to hold employment, to vote, to travel, and to speak. Our oppression is more internalized oppression. Our foremothers and our Asian sisters have had hardships we cannot imagine, and yet they were inspired by the Dharma and practiced diligently. What have I learned from the lives and teachings of our foremothers? And I've studied the lives and teachings of our foremothers a lot, and I plan to continue. Today, to draw on the story of one of our lineage foremothers from the Tibetan tradition. Her name is Paldarbon. She was a, a young Tibetan girl, a teenager, when she met Milarepa, the great yogi poet of the 11th century in Tibet. Paldarbon became one of his four female Dharma heirs. Her story in the 100,000 Songs of Milarepa usually goes unnoticed, but for now, I find many of the themes of our discussion present in the short account of her training with Milarepa. And telling her story brings her out of, into our awareness of the yoginis who have gone before. Not much is known about her, 
But she had a remarkable training with Milarepa and became enlightened through following his instructions. So I'd like to begin by telling her story in the present tense. Milarepa meets Palderbom on his way to a remote mountain region where he's about to enter retreat. It is autumn in the village, and the villagers are harvesting grain. Palderbom is leading a group of laborers, and Milarepa is struck by her beauty and demeanor and asks her for alms. She sends him to her house nearby, saying she will be there soon to give him food. When he reaches her house and enters, he is confronted by an old woman running at him with handfuls of ashes. The old woman shouts at Milarepa, thinking him a beggar or a thief, and she begins to throw ashes at him. He has tremendous insight immediately into her unhappy mind and stops her with his dharma teachings on the nature of possessiveness, anger, and aggression. Upon hearing his insightful dharma teachings, the old woman bursts into tears and begs his forgiveness. When the beautiful young Palderbu enters the house, she is immediately angry at Milarepa. Why is this old woman crying? Did you strike her? She asks Milarepa. The old woman interrupts her, no, no, these are tears of devotion. This is a wonderful, perceptive teacher. He has been reminding me of the true nature of reality. You are young, I am old. You should study with this yogi and become his student. At that moment, both of them discover for the first time that it is the great Milarepa who is in their midst, one of the most renowned teachers to that at that time. What have I discovered from the story of Polderbom that is relevant to our experience today? I think there are four things, three things, anyway, I've forgotten the number. First, I have discovered that women, just as we have observed, women have greater obstacles to practice the Dharma. Palderboom, in telling her story, exclaims to Milarepa, in the day there is never-ending work. In the night I am fast asleep. Morning and evening I am slave to food and clothing, house and work. I never had the chance to practice the Dharma. in traditional societies, but it is also often true in ours. Cultural pressures force women to find meaning in relationships and dissuade them from pursuing a personal inward path. Especially once they have families, they have responsibilities that are difficult to hand over to others. They do not have the economic power often to attend retreats and teachings. They bear tremendous cultural expectations that their families and their homes take precedence. Some women are in abusive, controlling relationships. In our society beyond this, we have more psychological obstacles. We are attached to our families and to our domestic lives. We do not seek meaning outside of them. Of our loved ones is our responsibility. Yet we do nothing to empower ourselves 
to truly bring about that happiness. We tie ourselves to domestic obligations even when we make others miserable with our resentment. Does that sound familiar? I'll read that line again. <laughs> we tie ourselves to domestic obligations even when we make others miserable with our resentment. We are ruled by our own emotions and then blame the others in our lives for our imprisonment. Our emotional intensity drowns us, confused, confuses us, and disempowers us. Elder Bloom is so moved by Milarepa, she asks to become his student and tells him her whole emotional story. She speaks of the encumbrances of marriage and family, but even more of the inner challenges of intense emotionality, thoughts of suicide, and the bondage and imprisonment of society's expectations. She sings this song. Great is our ambition, but our perseverance is small. We, women, are experts in slander, ingenious to, ingenious to blame, and the source of news and gossip. Seldom do we think of impermanence and death. The painful hindrances always follow us like shadows. At first, Milarepa has no idea how to respond, knowing that any response will bring us should I, should I praise your story or disparage it? He asks. If I praise it, you will be proud. If I disparage it, you will be angry. If I tell the truth, it will expose your hidden faults. Listen to the song of an old man. If you sincerely wish to practice the Dharma, wash the dirt from off your face and sweep away the covering from over your heart. Another quality we as women possess is a strong sense of fairness and justice. Yet often we do little directly to correct the problems of our world. Even when we labor to right the wrongs around us, we often end up unsatisfied. That's because, as the Buddha taught, real happiness and peace that we seek is not found only in outer justice. It is found first in an inner discovery. The secret to our happiness is unlocked within our own minds, but so often we cannot see this. Meditation practice gives us a glimpse of this, and once we taste it, there is a real possibility of transformation. The second teaching from our foremothers and forefathers is that once we as women begin to practice wholeheartedly, it is said that we have a greater propensity for the Dharma. This is a teaching that comes from a variety of sources in the Tibetan tradition, often without explanation, so I can merely speculate. Perhaps we have greater propensity because of the hardships of our lives and intensity of our emotions. That's what the Tibetan tradition would say. Have greater propensity because our path is more challenging. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a view that greater suffering brings greater wisdom if we practice wholeheartedly. If we practice just to manage our lives, to make our lives more workable, we are careful just to go deeply enough to settle our minds and develop some equanimity. But that's just a temporary measure. Our emotional intensity is kept at bay, and while we may have a more manageable existence, the potential to transform confusion into wisdom is missed. 
When we are truly desperate to awaken and follow the instructions of the practice, we bring our full emotional intensity to the path and we discover wisdom within that intensity. This is very much a Tibetan understanding that our wisdom is found in the midst of our most intense and painful emotions. Such a path requires a kind of nakedness that is unnerving. But true renunciation is naked and goes deeply into our most closely held habitual patterns. We will never get what we thought we wanted. Instead, if we practice, we will find ourselves wanting what we already have. Awake, clear, passionate minds. Milarepa tells Palderbaum of the four renunciations necessary for genuine practice. His choice of these shows tremendous insight about how we as women can fall prey to worldliness or materialism, and I find these tremendously helpful in my own practice. Number one, Milarepa advises Palderbaum to overcome miserliness that hoards worldly goods so that we can buy wonderful food and clothing and give only, give only in a token way. Milarepa says instead we should practice generosity. Next, Milarepa says that we fall into depression, darkness, and powerlessness and remain crippled by our life circumstances. We need a torch for this life in future lives. And that torch is our own minds. If we become meditators, we will light the way ahead and not fall into depression. Now I find it interesting because in the Tibetan tradition, women are very often given torch names when they receive refuge in Bodhisattva vows. It's a good reminder for me, I have a torch name for my refuge name, to remember that the torch is actually my mind. Milarepa also says that we as women become paralyzed by fear and look everywhere for a protector. But we look in the wrong places, hoping someone else will protect us. He says that the Dharma is our real protector, the one true guide for the obstacles in our lives. And he cautions us not to expect our lovers, friends, or relatives to protect us, especially if they're trying to persuade us not to practice the Dharma. Dharma is our only real help in the time of trouble. His last and timeless advice is to overcome our laziness and practice while riding the fresh horse of exertion or enthusiasm. The Tibetan tradition describes several kinds of laziness, but there's one I find most helpful here. It is the laziness of busyness. Filling our lives with activities, work, errands, and events, all while forgetting the main point of practice, which is to settle our minds and resolve everything into simplicity. Busyness is a way of filling our time wasting our time with activities that really contribute nothing meaningful to our lives. We as women tend to take care of others in our lives, but we do so on demand, not strategically. We need to be discriminating about how we use our time to see if it nurtures our practice and is of genuine benefit to others. Another way 
that we can be lazy is to settle for a kind of feel-good dharma. The kind of dharma teaching that entertains us, confirms us. And when it challenges us, we don't want to be challenged too much. Be like the dharma teacher who tells jokes, tells lots of personal stories. We want a kind of Oprah spiritual path with free gifts under our chairs and a kind of homespun wisdom that will enrich us without transforming us. We want an extreme makeover spirituality with a reveal at the end in which spiritually we are sexy, plastic, magazine page, spiritual beauties. It is possible to be more fearless spiritually than this, to look right into our lives and to practice meditation deeply and powerfully. The Dharma can, can empower us to really transform our lives from the ground up and to cultivate the genuine beauty of loving kindness. It can also bring real vision and courage to our lives that is more blazing than a magazine page. This is the kind of practice that Paul Durbom and Milarepa spoke of. Paul Durbom asks Milarepa to be her teacher, and he responds by assuring her that the transformation she seeks doesn't mean an outer change. She is not to become a monastic, and she is not to cut her hair. She is not to change her name or livelihood. That is not what makes her a Buddhist. It is profound meditation practice that changes everything. And then he gives her meditation instruction and sends her on retreat. His meditation instruction is, meditate on the sky without a center or boundary. Meditate on the ocean unfathomably deep. And then he sent her on retreat. So I want to pass out the song that she sings when she comes out of retreat. They say that she went on retreat for some time and she came out of retreat to ask questions from her practice. And her song to Melarepa and his answer has become one of the beloved songs in the Mahamudra tradition, set to music by my old friend Minnie Clark, who lives in the Northeast. And um, I'm giving you the words of the song, which I'm going to teach you. I've also given you a fantastic uh, link online to hear it sung much better than I can sing it. So um, I'm going to tell you all have a copy. And I'm going to teach you the song, and you're going to sing it with me. This is an especially beautiful song anyway, and meaningful to me because it was sung by Paul Durbul, Milarepa's student. And so the lines alternate between her questions and his answers. So let me sing it, and then you can join me. I'll sing one verse, and then, um, then we'll, all, we'll sing it all together. By the way, this is still my favorite meditation instruction. It's very profound, and uh, I hope that it will be of service to your meditation practice.
get my, there, there we go. The microphone cuts out every now and then. I can contemplate the sky, but clouds make me uneasy.
larger than thoughts, more radiant and vast than thinking. When we discover this nature of mind, we can resolve our confusion and our suffering. One of the thoughts that causes us unhappiness is our over-identification with our gender, whether male or female. We conceptualize our female or male identities and solidify in our minds what it means to be female. We cling to our gender and isolate its characteristics. But that is mostly thinking. When in meditation we fresh, freshly investigate our gender, it is difficult to actually find what is distinctively female about my moment-to-moment -moment sense perceptions, such as my sense of my body. What is distinctively female about my emotions, about my thought patterns? How do these differ from the experiences of men? This is difficult to fully know, and we conceptualize anyway. It is better for us to gently rest in non-conceptuality, and from that vantage point, freshly investigate our world, as Milarepa advises. When we gently rest in non-conceptuality, our habitual grudges, our hot buttons, and our victimhood is laid to rest. We feel fresh, invigorated, and curious about our world. We have a larger context for what we experience, and we're, we're able to operate with less bias and resentment. These are the gifts of meditation practice, as you know, and they provide a clean ground from which we can interact with the world. From that vantage point, our female gender is an opportunity, not an obstacle. It does not define me. It does not imprison me. Instead, I can use my female birth as an advantage that allows me to fully understand the experience of women in our world. It gives me an important link to every woman and to every man. Fully understood, gender is the play of the mind, just as thoughts are the play of the mind. We can use this precious opportunity as women to bring greater joy and peace to our gendered experience. Of course, there are many who wish to dismiss the suffering of women by invoking emptiness. This is what we call at Naropa spiritual bypassing. If we are outraged by injustice in the world, there are those who tell us, oh, it's just empty anyway. We struggle with powerlessness, abuse, or depression. We may be told that it's just empty. This is not wisdom. This is spiritual bypassing. It's using spirituality as an escape from suffering, and it is not compassionate or skillful. Telling someone it's just empty is dismissing their pain as well as dismissing them. It is not the compassionate path of reason. When we truly touch the genderless basis of our mind, the discovery is not dismissing suffering, but becoming more tender toward it. We can see suffering hurts, causes anguish for ourselves and for others. The distinctive wisdom of the Buddha was that suffering is a gateway, a teacher, and an opportunity to awaken from suffering. It is also a gateway to being helpful and supportive to others. We cannot employ that gateway if we dismiss it. 
Spiritual bypassing is rejecting suffering and using spirituality as a way to remove ourselves from those opportunities to soften, open, and awaken. In my lineage, it's said that when we are introduced to the absolute truth of emptiness, this experience is, if this experience is not accompanied by a spontaneous arising of great compassion, then it is not really a discovery of emptiness. It is merely an intellectual experience. If we follow Polar Boom's discovery of the nature of mind, we find ourselves engaging even more wholeheartedly in caring for others. Many years ago, when I was first working on my book, Dakini's Warm Breath, I had a series of wonderful interviews with the fantastic teacher Kandra Rinpoche, a woman Tulku in the Tibetan tradition. She's a very special teacher, and she's been a very special support to me in my journey. She said something to me that has been so helpful, and a friend of mine made a little card for me that I carry in my purse for the last uh, 17 years, this little saying, it's a slogan, that gets me through the day. If being a woman is an inspiration, use it. If it is an obstacle, try not to be bothered. I'm going to say it again. If being a woman is an inspiration, use it. If it is an obstacle, try not to be bothered. Following this advice is not so easy at first, but I found that it requires having some kind of real meditation experience, like polar rooms. When we can discover the true nature of our vast and luminous minds, then we can relate freshly to our gender. Rather than being trapped by being a woman, we can use the gifts of our gender to be inspired to help. And when we find the obstacles of patriarchy and androcentrism in our world, we don't have to be victimized by them. We just have to just not be bothered. This is an exciting time to be a woman in the Dharma. In this first real generation of American Buddhism, of Asian Buddhism coming to the West and becoming American, women have an important role in shaping American Buddhism, and really Buddhism in the world. Women are practicing the Dharma so genuinely. Women teachers, ministers are blossoming in many of our Buddhist environments. Women leaders are ensuring the openness of our Buddhist communities. Buddhist nuns in the West are contributing to the quality of life for Buddhist nuns the world over by pressing for the full monastic ordination for women. A group of dedicated scholars has brought out the stories of our lineage foremothers and has also brought our attention to the plight of women in more traditional societies. We have opportunities to support women teachers and practitioners elsewhere in the world. Our Western Buddhist communities are placing more value on compassion practices, family life, inclusiveness, and community participation, all qualities associated with the feminine principle in Buddhism. I like to think of all of this as the roar of the lioness, a proclamation of the feminine that makes the Dharma more complete. May we continue to contribute to the roar of the lioness throughout the world.